Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. We're back. It feels so weird to be in the year 2020. But then again, every year feels weird when it's new. Today's episode was actually my very first conversation I ever recorded for the podcast. I spoke with Dr. Ari Saikawa about air pollution and the current ways we are regulating it. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Saikawa. Thank you so much for being here. I Thank really you for appreciate having it. Me. So you got a PhD in science, technology, and environmental policy from Princeton University. Correct. Then uh, you got a master's in public affairs from Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And now you're currently an affiliated faculty member at the Chinese Research Center and a research affiliate at MIT mm-hmm. and an associate professor at Emory. <laughs> wow. <Yes. laughs> So why did you decide to go into environmental science in the first place? Was it popular at the time? So when I was a high school student, no, actually, when I was a middle school student, I guess, I realized that I was very interested in environmental issues. Well, to go back, when I was uh, sixth grade or fifth grade, I got into researching air pollution as a summer project with a friend of mine. And then I decided that um, I really liked working on something like that. And so I wanted to um, do something related to the environment. When I went to the high school, a lot of my um, teachers, they said that girls should not be studying science. And that made me really want to study science. That's so great. <laughs> I love that. So then I, I was a rebel and I decided that um, I'm definitely going to pursue science or engineering. Hell yeah. Um, and so that's how I went to the University of Tokyo to study engineering. And then I realized that that was really not connected to the society. And I did not like the way engineers were just focused on one specific issue. And I wanted to link it more to how we can solve the problem. And then I thought maybe I would study environmental policy so that I can bring the science and the policy together. And so that's how I came to Indiana University Bloomington to study environmental policy. And then I realized just studying policy was not really going to contribute to the society per se. And so I went to the interdisciplinary program in the PhD to potentially able to link the two. That's how um, my career started. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's been a struggle, but it's been very interesting. Nice. And so were there any other challenges that you faced back then that may or may not still be present today? Yeah, I think still in Japan um, and probably in some other Asian countries as well. Um, yeah, women are not really at the forefront of the workforce. So um, when I got accepted to the University of Tokyo, a lot of people said that I shouldn't go there. And then at the university itself, the ratio between men and women is very different from here. Um, Maybe in math and science, it's still the case here as well, probably. But um, it was very common to be just one female student in the class. And I don't think it has changed that much, unfortunately. I don't find that many female professors still in the sciences. Yeah. And so now you have your own lab. It's so exciting. (laughs) And so can you briefly tell me about your work there? Sure. Um, So my work is really interdisciplinary. So I started off working more on air pollution. And um, my PhD work was really about um, modeling Um, air pollution, especially focused on China and vehicle emissions. But then since then, um, I've 
expanded a little bit. So my, my lab now focuses on air pollution, but also the interlinkage between air pollution and climate change. And we also do some observational work as well as modeling. And then we recently got into soil pollution work wow. as well. So um, yeah, that's expanded a lot, but there are students from a lot of different departments. That's really exciting for me that I can work with students from different departments, um, sociology, environmental sciences, chemistry, physics, uh, quantum institute of quantitative theory and methods, wow. um, and media studies. So we do a lot of different kinds of problems looking at the issue uh, from different angles. And what are the main techniques that you use in your lab? Yeah, so the modeling work um, that we do is main, mainly a three-dimensional chemical transport model and the Earth system model. So it's very uh, much based on supercomputers. So um, it's very computational? Yeah, exactly. It's very okay. computational. So then, um, yeah, so some of the students don't necessarily... It's not all of us that do modeling work. So then we actually have started building a low-cost air quality monitoring stations at Emory. Wow. So some students are building that. And also we have an instrument that can measure greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and also um, ammonia. That's an air pollutant from soil. So we do field work in the UGA, University of Georgia, agricultural farm to see how much corn farms emit from soil. That's so cool. Yeah. So we are hoping that we can put a lot of sensors on campus so that we can see where there might be air pollution problems so that we can make students be aware of that problem. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. What new techniques are being developed in the field that might help measuring air quality or any other type of air pollution? Or Yeah, so actually I think um, there have been a lot of very sophisticated instruments as well. But probably the most exciting to me is how these low-cost sensors have been developed. And then because they are low-cost, they can be deployed in different places at much more finer resolution scale. So then I think it's very important that we understand not just in the U.S., but also in the developing countries, for example. And that's making that more accessible and available to people. So probably one of the exciting points in the recent years is that fine resolution data that's becoming more available. And so these sensors, are they specifically for scientific use? Or if I just wanted to measure in my house, could I buy one? Of course you can buy one. Oh, yeah. that's great. That's really, um, yeah, now there are a lot of different kinds of sensors as well. And um, one of my students just found that there is one sensor that you can also put in a backpack. And then uh, you can just be carrying it all the time. And there are different sensors, um, not just particulate matter, but also different gases as well that can measure. So it's really exciting. Interesting. Yeah, I was actually reading about this new technology that's basically like a phone sensor mm -hmm. that measures the air quality around you and how it could potentially help raise awareness and personal yeah. responsibility. Right. And I thought that was a really good idea. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, exactly. I think what's fascinating to me is when I first went to China to do um, to do air pollution work, um, that was in 2007, I think. When I asked people about air pollution, everybody said, what do you mean air pollution? There is no air pollution. It's just fog. Wow. And then within just a little over 10 years, 
people's perception has completely changed, and everybody is so aware of air pollution. They're very、um, concerned, and I think that's because of these social media. And then there was a、uh, one photographer that kept taking pictures from the same place every single day for three three hundred sixty-five days,、Whoa. so that you can see how the air quality is over the year. And it really clearly shows the gray sky days and how it persists over time. I think something like that, and then the data really speaks to themselves. That's、so. great. Awareness is the first step to change. Exactly.、So. Good. Let's talk air pollution. So it's obviously not a good thing, <laughs> but should the main reason for our concern be respiratory diseases or climate change, or what would you say is the main reason to stop air pollution? Yeah, that's a very good question.、Um, I think there are different types of air pollution. So, so the particulate matter, for example, they can cause respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, and some of the particles、um, are actually going to、um, cool the atmosphere, not warm the atmosphere. So, by reducing、um, air pollution, you might actually be、um, making climate change worse. So it's not as simple as that, Interesting. but no there、idea. are definitely yeah, <laughs> but there are definitely、um, I think you can be a win-win situation where you reduce air pollution and also、um, decrease the potential climate change impact. And then black carbon, for example,、um, that that's the smog that come out from diesels and brick kilns. Those are very big absorber of radiation,、um, both solar and long wave. So it would be great if we could reduce those particles、um, so that we can. Have health impacts, reduced adverse health impacts, and then potentially better for climate change and aesthetic reasons as well.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've read that you're able to detect from where these particles came from. So, can you tell me a, a bit about that? Because I'm, I don't understand how you can take a random particle in the air and know where. Its source, yeah, where it came from, right. So、um, I think that's the that's what we are really trying to do.、Um, so for for example, I worked a lot on、um, chemical species called nitrous oxide N two O. So for that, that's pretty e- e- not easy, but pretty possible to trace where it came from because it doesn't react too much. But then for particles, it becomes very complicated because they react, and then there are Not just primary、um, particulate matter, primary aerosols, but there are also secondary aerosols that form. So then, <laughs> wow! <laughs> so it is not too easy to figure out, but I think scientists are trying to do that. And the more fine resolution data we have on both emissions and also on air quality, that's going to make it more possible. Do you think more measures need to be taken to reduce our overall emissions? So there is definitely a lot of measures that still need to be taken to reduce emissions, so that we can、um, get better air quality. And I, I think we also have to realize that it's not just the ambient air pollution, but also household air pollution. There are still、um, two billion people that use biomass. At home, for heating and cooking, and that is causing a lot of problems inside. And you know, we do spend a lot of time indoors. So, if even if you have great ambient air air quality, if you had 
terrible household air pollution, then that would be bad for your health. We actually have a project in Tibet where we measure household air pollution. And I was fascinated by the fact that when we talked about air pollution problems to in some of the households, depending on where we go within Tibet, some people were really unaware of the household air pollution problem. And even if we are sometimes in the room where it's 150 times worse than the air pollution, air quality in Beijing. Wow. I mean, like with this distance, I would not be able to see the wall that is That's right crazy. over there. Um, but then still they said they're used to it. That's how they've lived. And so the perception was very different. And some of the people said we're burning yak dung, and that's sacred. So how would you approach a problem like that is a very fascinating question to me. And I think that's not just science and technology. It's cultural. Right, exactly. And that's a lot of, um, I guess, social science anthropology associated with it. Mm. So let's talk about your nature paper that measures the effectiveness of state policies in reducing CO2. Can you tell me more about these voluntary versus mandatory uh, state policies and their effectiveness? Sure. So what, um, there are different types of policies to reduce carbon dioxide or various emissions. And we were focusing on this paper, especially for power plants. Uh, what are the policies that exist, considering that there is none at the federal level? Are there any policies that are effective at the state level? And so we found that um, if they are mandatory, meaning that there are there is teeth associated with it, if you don't meet this regulation, then there is going to be some um, either fine or some kind of measures that you have to deal with. If they're voluntary, you are volunteering to report. So there's nothing that the regula regulatory agencies can do, even if you don't meet it. So I think it's, it is... Um, Probably a common sense that you would think that if it's a mandatory regulation, then they are serious about it. And so if you had serious policies, then they would probably be reducing the emissions. So that's what we found. But it was very interesting to us that um, the level, the number of um, policies that have been implemented in different states vary so much. And uh, it was quite obvious that some states are really not interested in reducing. And how can we change that? was what we were trying to do. Yeah, and I saw that only 18 states required to register and record their power plant emissions. Mm -hmm. And because these policies are so effective, how can we implement these federally and how do we make people care? Right. So I think now it's really um, one of the great things that happened uh, recently is the awareness by the children and how they are protesting and how they are um, advocating for a better climate um, and the change in terms of reducing emissions. I think we we have to have the bottom-up probably approach um, to ask for the environment that we want and hope that the industry is also going to be aligned with what people want because at the end of the day, uh, we can change how we live in a way, but we also need the industry to change as well. And the power plants uh, are definitely one of the big polluters in terms of CO2. So um, from the bottom up, um, if we could have the state to change, 
and then it, that would hopefully lead to the federal government to change. But um, that does not look that promising at this point. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> but I guess all we can do is to make people aware and then make people get excited. Mm. Yeah. And, and so we see countries like China and the United States are the ones who emit the most greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. But developing countries are the ones who are suffering the most. That's right. So how how are we dealing with this? Are we implementing policies? Are these developed countries taking responsibility? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think the biggest problem right now is that even though the countries that have emitted are from the global north, the countries that are going to be impacted are from the global south. And so that's why um, the agreement, like the Paris Agreement, exists so that we can try to achieve the two degree Celsius goal from the pre-industrial times. But right now, at, at this point, it doesn't seem like we can meet the goal. And then what's going to happen is all the burdens are going to be taken by the global south. And there is no good mechanism at this point to help them. And I think that is something that we really have to be concerned about and see what we could do about it um, because that's how we've lived all the time to put the burden on the global south and not... Won't last long. Right, exactly. And so what would you say is the most important aspect of either air pollution or environmental science in general that we should be focusing on in our research in the next 10 years. Wow. Well, okay, let me step back. <laughs> yeah, take your time. <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, the most important probably is to be curious about what's around you. So the research question to me doesn't happen just because you're thinking about it or you're trying to solve something. For example, this heavy metal contamination that we happened to find in West Alana was very quite serendipity. Um, we were very interested in urban agriculture because there's a lot of urban agriculture movement right now. And then we found industrial slag dumped in an empty lot that was causing a lot of heavy metal contamination. So I think what I want to say is that we never know where the problem might be. And when you find something that you were not expecting, I think it's important that we be patient and then try to find out what the problem is, even though that was probably not what you intended to do in the beginning, because science is just like that. You you don't happen to find something just because you are looking into it. Sometimes yeah. you find it just by chance. Just take the chance and go from there is what I would think. So last but not least, what is your one piece of advice that you would give to younger researchers who are just starting out in the field? Yeah, so I think maybe um, repeating what I said earlier, I would like them to be on a, I, I guess, to be broad, broadly curious, being interested in many different things. Uh, I think it, it's very important to be curious and logical because there are problems everywhere, but how you want to link it, how you are going to make the unique research question, I think that's going to be very important. So read a lot <laughs> and be interested in a lot of different things and try to solve it, even if you might not be able to, because that's, that's how we learn. And 
solving is not necessarily the only important thing that's in the world. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank、Ari. you. It was so nice talking to you. Yes, it was great. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time.